0: We're reading Philippians 1 verses 21 to 24 and Revelation 6 and there won't be any overhead so find your Bibles and open them up. Philippians chapter 1 verses 21 to 24. I hear those pages turning, I love that sound. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake." Revelation 6, verses 9-11. through And when He broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. Dear Father, help us this morning to understand what You have in store for us when these mortal bodies yield as they must to the curse of death. Teach us to live joyfully, And courageously because we know these things are true. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you've been with us through this series up to this point or even at certain points, you know by now that our eternal home, the dwelling place of God with His saints forever will be here in a redeemed, restored, glorious New Jerusalem on a purged, purified, restored new earth. Or at least you know that that's what I and many others have concluded from the passages of Scripture that speak of these things. Jesus promised just before He left the first time that He was going to prepare a place for us so that where He is, there we may be also, we His people. Revelation 21 declares that when Jesus makes all things new, that place that He's been preparing, the holy city, New Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven from God made ready, prepared, the same word, as a bride adorned for her husband. He's bringing heaven with Him when He comes and makes all things new. Now those are still future events this cursed corrupt earth and all its works have not yet been burned up with intense heat as Peter says they will in 2nd Peter 3 the things on earth have not yet been reconciled with the things in heaven as Paul says that they will when all things are summed up in Jesus Christ The holy city has not yet come down out of heaven to earth. God does not yet dwell right in the midst of his people in a redeemed Jerusalem, as is promised in many, many verses in Old and New Testament. Jesus has not yet finished making all things new. And the bodies of those saints who have already Died, have not yet been raised from their graves and transformed from perishable to imperishable and from mortal to immortal. Our confident expectation that God is going to do all of those things just as He promised is what the Bible calls the believer's hope. That hope is the anticipation of things we cannot yet see or lay our hands on Because that hope is all about what God has yet to do. And every bit of that hope is founded on what God has already done at the cross of Jesus Christ. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and His righteousness. His blood and righteousness. That forward-looking, upward-looking hope is what the writer of Hebrews calls the anchor of our souls. But if all of these things are yet to come, what does the promise of heaven mean for those whose mortal bodies have already taken their last breath here? What does the promise of heaven mean for us when we take our last breath here? This morning we're going to look at what the Bible says about the present heaven, about heaven Now, before Christ ushers in the new heavens and the new earth that we've been talking about for the last several weeks, what kind of place is the present heaven? Is it purely spiritual in nature, as many Christians believe that it is, with no physical component? Well, we know that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he did so bodily. When He was raised from the dead, He was raised bodily. And it was that body with the holes in the hands and in the side and in the feet that the disciples saw go up into heaven. It would seem inconsistent to assume that the body of Jesus is the one and only physical thing in heaven now. The only thing that has any tangible substance. Everything else is completely spiritual. The early chapters of the book of Revelation speak with great consistency about a place. A place in which God now sits on His throne. Interestingly, Revelation 8 speaks of that place in terms that seem to correspond quite a bit with some of the details of the earthly picture of God's dwelling place that was in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. Chapter 8 of Revelation speaks of an angel holding a golden censer filled with incense taken from a golden altar which was before the throne of God. Mixed with that incense is the prayers of the saints going up into the nostrils of God as a soothing aroma. In the old earthly tabernacle, the high priest had a censer, a little fire pan, and he would take incense from the altar of incense that was just outside the veil in front of the throne room of God and he would put that incense onto the, the censer, the firepan. He had to do that so smoke would go up before his face on the Day of Atonement when he came into the Holy of Holies because he couldn't see God in his, all his glory. He had to have smoke in front of his face. The heavenly realm that John beheld in Revelation appears to be the reality, the substance of the things that the tabernacle foreshadowed. Think of it this way. If Jesus left this earth to prepare a place for us, and if the place that He is going to bring down out of heaven from God is a physical place, then why would we think that it's not a physical place now? It seems to me that the burden of proof lies on those who insist that it's not. Physical in any sense. You can do what you want with that. I believe the present heaven is a beautiful, transcendent place that is both spiritual and physical in nature. A place made holy by the same thing that the only thing that makes any place holy. And that's the presence of God. Will we have physical bodies in the present heaven? I don't know with any certainty. But... Again, for what it's worth, I tend to believe that the physical part of man, the physical aspect of man, is an indispensable part of what makes us human. God made us from the dust of the earth and then breathed life into our nostrils. I suspect that we'll have some kind of intermediate, temporary bodies in heaven until God redeems and changes these bodies when He resurrects us, when He raises us. But I don't know for sure. What is it like in the present heaven for those who have preceded us? Most of us have wondered at times what our loved ones who went before us are thinking about, what they're doing, what they're experiencing in the presence of God. And of course I'm talking about our loved ones who died as believers in Jesus Christ. We wonder if they know what's going on here. Or if perhaps they're insulated from all of this this mess down here in order that their joy may be more complete. I think that most believers assume that whatever we might imagine about that, about what the saints are doing in heaven now, it's pure speculation that the Bible really doesn't have anything to say about it. But I believe the Bible actually does have some things to say about it. Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 presents what the, what John the apostle saw and heard right after the lamb Jesus Christ broke the fifth of seven seals revealing severe judgments decreed by God that passage is part of an extended passage that starts in chapter 4 in which John the apostle is beholding things that are going on in heaven then and in the future. Now it's clear that the description in those chapters applies to what heaven is like now. Before the eternal state of things. Before the new heavens and the new earth. And you know how I know that? I know that because when Jesus brings the new Jerusalem down out of heaven, there will be no more death. Revelation twenty one four. But here in Revelation 6, God tells these saints who were already in His presence to rest for a while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were yet to be killed even as they had been killed should be completed. So this is before the end of death. This is before the undoing of the curse. This is heaven now. In one chapter of his excellent book that I've pointed out many times, Heaven by Randy Alcorn, given to me me many years, uh, many months ago by my brother Don Grimm. Alcorn makes 21 observations about the present heaven from these three verses in Revelation 6. He would have done great in Howard Hendricks' first year hermeneutics class. You seminary guys know that the first day of the first class of Hendricks' hermeneutics You have to go home, and for homework, you have to, I can say this now, because he's with the Lord. Used to be a, a, a secret. You have to go home and you have to come up with 25 observations about Acts 1-8. And then you come back with your paper, you've worked hard on it, and you come back and you're all excited about it, and then he says, okay, tonight you go home and give me 25 more. It's like marine push-ups. I'm not gonna go through all 21 of Alcorn's observations, but I believe there's some very valuable and instructive things from his list, so I'm going to pick out a few. In this passage, in these three verses, John gets to listen in on an appeal to God made by the saints who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. These are martyred saints. They're crying out to God with a loud voice. And they're presenting a passionate request. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? By the way, as Bob Deffenbaugh pointed out when he was teaching some things through Revelation a while back, the phrase those who dwell upon the earth is always talking about apostate unbelievers all throughout the book of Revelation. It's used about six times, and it's always talking about the lost. The first thing to note is that these saints in heaven experience real passion and real emotion. When they cry out to God, they cry out with a loud voice. Secondly, they are clearly aware of what happened to them when they were still here. There's no men in black memory wipe that makes them oblivious of what was going on when they were still here, of the suffering and the pain and the persecution that they experienced here. They are aware of the injustice done to them by their persecutors and they are clearly still longing to see God right that injustice. See, longing is not sin when you long for the things that God longs for. Our first inclination is to think, wow, if I'm still going to be upset when I get to heaven about all the stuff that happened down here, what's, what's so great about heaven? I have enough to be upset about while I'm still here. But I don't believe that's what this passage is describing. It's amazing to me how this passage corresponds with the passage in Zechariah chapter 1. In that passage, the one who is called the angel of the Lord... The angel or messenger of the Lord says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? The person praying that prayer is Jesus. The second person of the Trinity who throughout the Old Testament is referred to in passage after passage as the messenger of Yahweh, the angel of and I could prove that. I'm not going to take the time today if you, if you won't see the evidence for that. It's very compelling. He's not making this request of His Father because He distrusts His Father. He's not making this request of His Father because He's dissatisfied with His Father's agenda or with His Father's timetable. He's praying this because He trusts His Father and He cares deeply about His people. He longs to see the unfolding of the marvelous promises that he knows God is going to keep. Longing to see God keep keep His promises is not sin. It's not sin here, and it won't be sin in heaven. The answer Jesus receives in Zechariah was filled with gracious words, comforting words. And that answer is very much like the answer the saints receive in Revelation 6. And Zechariah, the Lord of hosts, promised his own son that he is going to return and set all things straight. He says, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it. My cities will again overflow with prosperity. And Yahweh will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. And by the way, he's going to do all those things through the one who asked him to do what he just asked. And in the very next verses in Zechariah 1, God promises to execute vengeance for His people. To throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in pride. In Revelation 6, the martyred followers of Jesus Christ make the same essential request of God in heaven. How long, O Lord? before that glorious day when you avenge our blood and all creation beholds your justice and your great and jealous love for your people. And there in Revelation 6, God's answer is equally gracious and comforting. By the way, all of this makes another important reality about heaven very clear, and that is that the saints who have already passed in the presence of God still live by faith. They're still depending entirely on Him to finish doing everything that He has promised to do. They still bring their petitions to Him. They don't take them upon themselves. And God's answer to their request is the same answer that He gives to us now. Here and now. Be still. Be patient. Be at rest. All that I have promised is coming soon. Be still and know that I am God. Can you imagine what it will be like to raise your petitions up to God when those petitions are completely free of the impurity of requests for things that don't matter to God? When those petitions will be lifted up to Him without any element of sin or selfishness, without any doubt that He will do all that He has promised to do. Beloved, when we're in heaven, we're going to pray like we have never prayed before. When we enter the presence of God, we will not become blissfully ignorant of what's going on down here. Instead, we will become blessedly aware of all that God is doing to fulfill His precious and magnificent promises, to carry out His work of redemption all the way to the end in Jesus Christ, just as He promised over and over and over. We will no longer see as through a clouded glass the way we see now. Our awareness of the pain and suffering of those that we love who are still waiting for their homecoming will not grieve us as it does now. We'll see with the eyes of eternity. We'll see with much greater clarity just how wonderfully God is working everything that happens here toward perfect and eternal good. We will know with great confidence what we're supposed to know now with great confidence. (laughs) That the Lord is not slow about His promise. As some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Second Peter three nine. What will remain of all that we and the redeemed of all time have suffered here will be the overwhelming awareness of the eternal weight of glory of which God has made us partakers in Christ. And the contrast between that eternal weight of glory and the suffering that we have faced in this life will make this suffering seem to be momentary light. Affliction. 2 Corinthians 5. Romans 8.18 We will behold a glory, His glory, that will make all that we suffered here no threat at all to the exceedingly great joy that we come to know in His presence. Psalm 16. In Your presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. At Your right hand there are pleasures forever. Some Christians believe that we will be outside of time in heaven. That the passage of time will be meaningless to us. But listen again to God's response to the prayer of the heavenly saints in Revelation 6. They were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. The saints who are in heaven right now are aware of the passage of time, just as we are, (laughs) except the passage of time to them is in the context of eternity. By the way, I believe that everything the Bible says about the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, in other words, about eternity tells us that our eternal home with God will also involve an awareness of the passage of time. Just one little example. Revelation 22.2 says that the tree of life in New Jerusalem is going to bear 12 kinds of fruit every month. Every month. Sometimes we think that heaven is going to be so otherworldly that there's not anything about it that we can even begin to comprehend here, and I don't think that's the case. Sure, it's transcendent. It's crazy transcendent. It's way beyond anything we can imagine here and now. But there are elements, there are things about our eternal dwelling place that God has made very clear, and we can relate to them. And we can rejoice in them. It also appears from these verses that the saints in the present heaven will have a strong bond with the saints who remain behind. Particularly with those who are suffering persecution for following and proclaiming Christ. In Revelation 6, God encourages the saints in heaven to be patient. And on what basis? Because they're waiting until the saints who are still here get martyred the way they did. If you, if you read Revelation spend much time in it, you'll see that uh, many believers are going to die the hard way. And they're going to die standing on their faith in Jesus Christ. Many, many, many of that multitude that will be in heaven will die the deaths of martyrs. Then will come the avenging. God Himself is making sure that the saints already in heaven remain mindful of the saints not yet in heaven. We're still in this together. To my mind, this puts the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews twelve one and 2 into a somewhat different light. That passage says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I used to think that the phrase cloud of witnesses in the first verse of that passage was just a metaphor to kind of express our accountability to God to honor the memory of those faithful saints from previous ages by living godly lives now. In other words, I thought that the verse meant live as if those faithful believers who came before you were watching what you're doing here. I now believe that that interpretation robs a powerful verse of its power. I'm convinced that the faithful saints who have gone before us are quite aware of what's going on right now with us. They are seeing our faith and obedience or the lack of it from God's perspective and with God's agenda firmly in mind. In John 8, verse 56, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders of His day, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see My Day and he saw it and was glad. Sounds to me like Abraham was watching intently what was going on here when Jesus came from heaven to earth the first time. If you have a great grandmother or a grandfather or a mom or a brother or a sister or a child who has passed into the presence of God, I believe that that dear saint is watching what you're doing today for the sake of Jesus Christ and perhaps is even speaking to God of you along with a bunch of other saints. At the end of the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15, Jesus said, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And just three verses later in his conclusion to the parable of the lost coin, he says again, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one one sinner who repents. The rejoicing that takes place in the presence of the angels in heaven when your son or daughter or brother or sister or co-worker or neighbor comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that rejoicing is not limited to the angels. Because There are people in the presence of the angels too. Read Revelation 4-8. through That rejoicing includes the saints who have gone before you who are watching what's going on here as Christ's work to seek and save the lost continues through His people. See, those departed saints left their mortal flesh behind when they stepped into the presence of God, but they still have skin in the game of God's ongoing work of redemption. The union and communion that we share with the redeemed people of God includes the redeemed people of God who are already in the presence of God. We are still in this together with all the saints of all the ages, beloved. That's the body of Christ. I should add that the cloud of witnesses is made up of people who served God imperfectly when they were here, just as we serve God Imperfectly. Now, made up of people like Abraham and Sarah and Lot and Jacob and Moses and Samson and David. People whose only real claim to fame was that sometimes they acted in faith and when they did, God accomplished mighty things through them. Now, that cloud of Formerly imperfect witnesses has been freed from the very presence of sin and brought into the very presence of God. They are our fellow forerunners in this great marathon, but they're the ones who have already crossed the finish line. They know what it takes. They know what God is doing with us, and they're advocating for us. Not that we need an advocate before God, they're... Cheering us on. They're watching us. They're with us. But what is the focus of their attention? Is it us? In Revelation 7, the very next chapter, John beholds a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and every tribe and tongue and people standing before the throne and before the Lamb and they are clothed in white robes. That multitude cries out with a loud voice again, there's the passion. And they say, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Along with that multitude are all the angels standing around the throne with the, with the elders and the four living creatures. They fall on their faces before the throne and they worship God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In the verses that follow, the angel who was showing John these things explains to him that this multitude of people from every nation and tribe and language are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. I think this is the same martyred saints that were crying out to God for vindication in the chapter just before this one. And then the angel tells John, For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne shall spread His tabernacle over them. That imagery, God spreading His tabernacle over them, that goes back to what we were talking about, about us spreading out the tabernacle of God now. And it's got an amazing connection back to Isaiah 25 where God says when He prepares this lavish banquet for His people, it says that He is going to remove the veil that is spread over all the nations. And that veil is death. And He's going to replace it with His tabernacle. With His presence in the midst of His people. He's going to spread it over us. Ah, Just blows my mind. And He says, "...they shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat." For the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. Make no mistake, the focus of attention of the saints who have gone before us, who stand right now before the throne of God, is God. They're focused like a laser beam on him, just like we're supposed to be here. Colossians. Chapter 3, verses 1-4. through If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. His unveiling is your unveiling. Beloved, your dwelling place is His dwelling place. That's already your home. Yes, He's come to take up residence within us in the person of the Holy Spirit, but He's also prepared a place for us to go to be with Him forever And that place is already your home. That heavenly city is already your home. He already has a room for you with your name on it. Positionally, you've already died. You've already been raised up with Christ. In a very real and important sense, you're already there. And so, you and I are supposed to live with the very same focus as those who are in every sense already there. The same focus. We have a lot in common with the people who are already in His presence. They have a lot in common with us. The passage I read at the beginning from Philippians 1 and in a similar statement that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 5, there are many questions left unanswered about exactly what happens when we leave these mortal bodies. But what is crystal clear in both of those passages is that for the child of God, to be absent from this mortal body is to be at home with the Lord. And that, that is very much better than our present situation. Whatever else we discover to be true when we breathe our last in these dying bodies, we know this will be true. We will be with Him. So why the wait? if being in the presence of the Lord is very much better than being here, why has God left us in this corrupt, decaying, dying world inside these corrupt, decaying, dying bodies even one more minute? Well, I hope the answer is self-evident, but in today's Christian culture, culture, I'm not so sure that it still is self-evident. Paul gives us the answer in Philippians 1.24. He says, Yet to remain on in the flesh is necessary for you, and he's talking to the church. In Second Corinthians five he elaborates further. He says, "Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, we are of good courage. He says that twice and prefer rather to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We're going to talk about the believer's judgment next time. We're still here so that others will eventually be there with us. We're still here to build up the body of Christ and to expand the body of Christ, the dwelling place of God in the midst of His people until it covers the earth. We're here to stimulate one another to love and good deeds so that the body of Christ... The dwelling place of God among men will continue to grow and to grow up into Christ. I want to conclude this morning by taking you to a very famous, very simple promise found in Luke chapter 23 verse 43. Luke 23, 43. It's the promise that Jesus made to the man hanging beside him on a cross outside of Jerusalem Most of you know those gracious words of our Lord to that thief dying beside him. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What did that promise mean? The word that's translated paradise is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament twice to refer to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2.15 and 3.23. The same word shows up three times in the New Testament. Here in our Lord's promise to the thief in Luke 23, paradise appears to refer to the present heaven, the place to which those who die in Christ go now. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul describes an amazing experience in which he was taken up to what he calls the third heaven, where he saw things that God did not allow him to write down. He heard things, inexpressible words that a man is not permitted to speak. And He identifies that place to which He was caught up as paradise. In Revelation 2, verse 7, Jesus says to the churches, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now it's not clear whether all of those occurrences of the word describe the same place or situation or time frame. Exactly. It's not clear whether that last one in Revelation 2 refers to the present heavens, present heaven or to the new heavens and the new earth. But there are two things that all of the occurrences of the word paradise have in common in the Bible. The first is that the place to which that word refers always is talking about a wonderful transcendent place. A place of extraordinary blessedness. But most importantly by far, God is in that place. Any man who obtains entrance into the place that God calls paradise enters into the presence of Christ and of God. That is what makes the place paradise. And that is what makes the exchange between Jesus and that dying thief so beautiful. The thief's request of Jesus wasn't focused on a place, it was focused on a person. It was a deeply personal and heartfelt request. While every other voice in his hearing was hurling insults toward Jesus, And mocking Him, this humble, humiliated, guilt-ridden, dying thief knew who Jesus was and is. He knew that this one hanging beside Him was the Son of God. The true King of the Jews that a plaque on Jesus' cross mockingly declared Him to be. The Christ. The promised Messiah as the thief hanging on the cross on the other side of Jesus, mockingly declared Him to be. This dying man knew something that Christ's own disciples hadn't quite sorted out yet. He knew that this would not be the last day of Jesus' life. He knew that Jesus would endure beyond the death of His physical body that was inevitable that day. And this humble thief knew his own terrible unworthiness to occupy the same space as the glorious king beside him. The the request that he made of Jesus was flawless in its humility and in its simplicity. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That thief didn't expect anything good to happen to him that day. In fact, he didn't expect anything good to happen to him ever. He knew that the ignoble death that he was suffering at that moment was deserved. He deserved it. But the man being crucified beside him most certainly did not. He made a simple, humble request of the only one in the universe who could ever honor such a request. It was a request for a day yet to come. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He surely did not expect the answer that he received. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You don't have to wait until I come and establish My kingdom on earth. You'll be with Me today. Far from this terrible suffering and humiliation and death that Your own sin brought upon You. You will leave the curse behind today. You will be with Me. And because You're with Me, You will be in paradise. Beloved, our Lord's promise to that dying thief is His promise to every believer in Jesus Christ. There are some who were part of our family at CBC, including a few who can no longer be here on Sundays, whose remaining days on this earth as we know it will be few in number. And there are some suffering advanced stages of physical decline who may yet have to endure that decline and that pain for quite some time before they go into the presence of the Lord. There are men, women, and children in places of the world who are being beheaded, possibly as we sit here this morning because they name the name of Jesus Christ. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstance, whatever your suffering, if your trust is in Jesus Christ, there is something that God wants you to know with very great certainty. When your mortal body draws its final breath, the very next thing that you will see is the face of your Savior and Master. Far from the curse. Far from all that you and I deserve. (laughs) We will be with Him. And we will always, always. Dear Father, You have set us free from... Slavery to fear of death. You have removed the sting of death. You have filled our hearts with a beautiful and empowering anticipation. Not only to be with You. That's the greatest of all. But Father, with an eagerness to make You known to others so they can come with us. Draw the eyes of our hearts ever upward. Teach us to say with the Apostle Paul, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We ask this in Your precious name.